All right, our practice, our custom on Sunday mornings is to go through a section of God's Word, uh, to do that together. We do that way because we believe the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God, the inspired Word of God, and that God has given us the Bible uh, to teach us about Him, to teach us about His Son, and along the way to change our lives. We believe that the Bible is life-changing. So together we study the Bible, we read the Bible, we talk about the Bible. And today in this new series, we come to one of the most fascinating stories in the entire Bible. It's an Old Testament story. It's the story of King David. There is more in the Bible about David than any other single person next to Jesus Christ. And that's because God has all sorts of things he wants to teach us through David, about him, about Jesus. But first, a, a word of caution about how we read, how we approach Old Testament biography. You see, I, I want us to avoid, I want you to avoid a trap of just reading David moralistically. Uh, David did this, therefore I need to do that. Looking at the character strengths and Weaknesses. Well, if David did this, and that's what I'm going to do. If David didn't do that, man, I, I'm going to avoid that. Uh, now, there's some legitimacy to that, but if that's the only way, the main way we approach these Old Testament biographies, these stories of like guys like David, uh, we have a problem. The problem is the Bible is primarily about God. As a matter of fact, when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament tells us that the Bible is really about Jesus. Even the Old Testament is about Jesus. So, for example, after Jesus was raised from the dead, we come to an interesting passage in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and he's talking, and look what Luke tells us is going on. Let's see this passage. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, now the he there is Jesus, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now the scriptures refer to the Old Testament. So the Old Testament points to Jesus. <coughs> the life of David points to Jesus. And we will be way ahead of the game when we come to David, if we go from David to Jesus, then to me. Hey, Joe, would you bring me some water? <coughs> How about a, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. There's a little commercial time out. And our tendency, the reason I mention that, is that our tendency is to typically go from David to me. And, and, and we miss going from David to Jesus and, and then to me. Now, if we go just from David to me, then what happens is we usually end up feeling pretty guilty. I, I mean, the, the Word of God has a way of sort of clobbering us and pile upon us. Because who in the world can be like David? Uh, but worse, we miss Jesus. So there's two approaches to studying the Bible. One is we just ask this question, 
well, what does the Bible uh, uh, teach me about how I should live? The other is, well, what does the Bible uh, teach me about God and what he has already done and what he's doing in his son? And if we read it this latter way, then we're going to see Jesus everywhere, even in the Old Testament. And I hope to demonstrate that in this series, this Old Testament series on the Old Testament character of David. So grab a Bible and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now you say, where in the world is 1 Samuel? Well, it's easy. It's right before 2 Samuel. <laughs> yeah, you can find it. It's the ninth book in the Old Testament. It's about, if you're grabbing a Bible in front of you, it's about page 270. And it's named... Samuel, because it's named after the great prophet Samuel, an amazing guy who was a, the key leader in Israel and kind of brought Israel up into Israel's monarchy, its period with the kings. And when we come to 1 Samuel, interestingly enough, this is about 1,000 B.C., so we're reading about events that took place 3,000 years ago. Let's begin 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. Now there's nothing wrong with grieving. In the previous verse, God is grieving over the failure of Saul, the fact that Saul had to be removed as the first king, that he loses the throne because of his disobedience. But there is a time to re-engage, to move on. And here God tells Samuel, it's that time. Let's go to verse 2. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. They didn't want to get in between Samuel and Saul. When they met him, they asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Now, consecration was an Old Testament concept of cleansing. Cleanse your, you cleanse your heart, you cleanse your body, you cleanse your clothes. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? Okay, now remember that. Underline that key concept. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen the, er, these. So he asked Jesse, is this it? Are these all the sons you have? Uh, well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. 
So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. Now, this is a symbol, an important Old Testament symbol. We find it over and over the Old Testament of uh, the, the presence of God. So in anointing, God moves in, enters David. And we see this in the rest of the Um, verse. So we anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went back to Ramah. Now, there's four things I want to talk about here in this passage. I want to look at God choosing, God equipping. uh, I want to look at God testing, and then I want you to see Jesus redeeming. Uh, the first points to God's sovereignty. The second points to God's provision. The third points to God's plan. And then Jesus redeeming, of course, points to God's grace. So we're going to take these in order. First, God choosing. Now go back to verse 1. In verse 1, we see this word chosen. The Hebrew word behind that word is literally rendered to see. It's a word that's used regularly in this passage. So if you drop down to verse 6, it's the word used to describe what Samuel saw in Elab. And then in verse 7, in this important, the most important verse in our section, some would argue verse 7 is the most important verse in all of 1 Samuel, the key verse. This verb, see, tells us what God sees in contrast to what people see. So this verb, see, chosen, it's in verse 1, gets at what God sees, what God chooses, what God values in contrast to what we as humans, as people value. Now, I just love the way Pastor Tim Keller unpacks this. He tells us the issue raised in this important verse, verse 7, is the issue of misdirection. Misdirection is what pickpockets do to steal your money. It's what magicians do. It's getting people to focus over here in an area that's inconsequential so they can do something over here. Uh, uh, Misdirection is to be fooled. Now God is saying something huge to Samuel in verse 7. God is saying the entire human race is being misdirected. It's looking in the wrong place. It's looking over here. It's focusing on outward appearance. It's being pickpocketed. Now, this is such a common uh, problem that even Samuel is struggling, even after all he went through with Saul. I mean, Saul was a giant of a man. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. We read earlier in the book of Samuel. He was a giant. He had size. He had strength. He had the appearance, but he failed. And Samuel sees David's oldest, Eliab. (laughs) And he must have been tall, he must have had size, because he thinks, oh, 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 that's the one. Firstborn, size. Uh, But it wasn't Eliab. And it wasn't the second, it wasn't the third, it wasn't the fourth. So God says in verse 7, Samuel, you are being pickpocketed. It's not height, it's not size, it's not strength, it's not money, it's not appearance, it's not anything external. All of that isn't 
inconsequential. It's the heart. It's character. It's your soul. It's what goes on on the inside. That's what matters. Frankly, it's exactly what Martin Luther King was getting at some uh, uh, years earlier when he said, and I have a dream speech, remember? Uh, Would to God that we would look at people not in terms of the color of their skin, but in terms of the content of their character. That's 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But here we are 3,000 years later, and the problem is much worse. We are continually bombarded uh, by images of physical beauty, money, uh, uh, success, status is the key to life. I mean, watch the commercials during the Bears game today. Or, 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 I, I should say during the Bears victory today, right? I mean, we're just bombarded by this. And it's incredibly corrosive. And it's all misdirection. All of it is misdirection. We're being pickpocketed and we don't even know it. Uh, For women in in our culture today, nothing matters more than your appearance than being uh, supermodel thin. Uh, for men, it's an appearance thing, but it's also success and, and status and, and, and stuff. I mean, think about the problem of pornography. What ultimately is the problem of pornography? It is uh, the ultimate misdirection. It's man after man being pickpocketed because it reduces women to external appearance. And so here we are, 3,000 years down the road from 1 Samuel 16. And we take what's inconsequential, what's uh, temporary, the external, the outward appearance, and we make it everything. Watch the commercials today. And every day we're being robbed. Every single day. And here... 3,000 years ago, God is saying character is infinitely more important than appearance. Character is infinitely more important than talents or gifts. I mean, our culture uh, today, uh, one of the dominant questions is, can you produce? Can you achieve? Can Can you get it done? And it doesn't matter what your moral life is like. It doesn't matter what your marriage is like, if you're married or, or, or your family. As a matter of fact, it's uh, politically incorrect to think it does matter. That, that's the air we breathe. But Jesus will come along in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, and Jesus will not say, blessed are those that produce. Jesus will say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Interesting, interesting point here. And and let me just caution you again. It's a sign of your lack of character if you're indifferent to character. It's a sign of your lack of love if you're indifferent to love. Now let me go on. The second thing we see in this first half of this chapter is not just God choosing or God seeing. We see God 
equipping, God empowering. This is verse 13. When God calls, when he calls David, he empowers David. When God calls us, he empowers us. The will of God will uh, never ever lead you where the Spirit of God will not sustain you, where the grace of God will not keep you. We see that here in this chapter. Verse 13 literally says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit rushed on David, rushed on David, overwhelmed David, flooded David. But I need to back up for a moment to clarify what's going on here. You see, you will make a mistake. You and I will make a mistake if we read this section in light of verse 7 and think David was chosen king because he had a good heart, a better heart, a perfect heart, unlike the rest of us. When the reality is the rest of First and Second Samuel will reveal David doing some terrible things. Leading some people to say, and I think accurately, that David's heart is no different than Saul's. So this is the key. No one, not even David, merits grace based on the quality of their heart. We're all sinful, fallen people. There, no one has an instinctively good heart. But as the Spirit comes on David, and as the Spirit changes David... David will learn submission. And he will choose to obey God. Something Saul never learned. So verse 7, in this slide, isn't so much a statement about David's heart as it is a statement about what God values. Because David, like each and every one of us, will need God's Spirit to flood his life, to overwhelm him, uh, to change him. Because each of our hearts, David's hearts, uh, left to themselves, are sinful, fallen, self-centered, self-absorbed, self-seeking. And so when we come to verse 13, and David is anointed, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, enters David, the Spirit begins the process of wrestling David's heart to the ground of breaking it, of shaping it, of redeeming it. David is not the hero of 1st and 2nd Samuel. God is. The Spirit is the secret to David's success, David's rise. That's the point of verse 13. And the same is true for each and every one of us. Look at how Paul illustrates this in 2 Corinthians. Let's put this passage up here. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from our smarts. The, the fact that we're just smarter than everybody, right? No, from God, from God, from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. That's all of us. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory because of Christ in us, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. And it's all a Spirit thing. So the moment 
this side of the cross, a person comes to Jesus Christ, is saved by Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in and takes residence. It's true for every single one of us that come to Christ. And it's the Spirit that changes us, just as it's going to be the Spirit that changes David. So to be a Christian is to be a spirit person. To be Christians, to be spirit people. Now let me go on, because there's more. Not only does God choose, that points to God's sovereignty, not only does God equip David here, which reveals his provision, but what I want you to see is that God also tests David. And that points to God's plan, his plan for David, his plan for all of us. Now, we don't see this in chapter 16. We don't see this in our section. But it begins in chapter 17. It goes all the way through for Samuel to chapter 31. You see, David doesn't become king right away. As a matter of fact, Saul will be on the throne for a long time. And for the next, uh, we think about 10 years, Saul will remain king And increasingly, Saul is going to do everything he can to kill David. So David will spend the next 10 years. And if David is a teenager here, arguably some of the best years of his life, all through his 20s, when we're going to school, when we're starting our careers, our our jobs, when we're starting our families, what's David doing? Man, David is on the run. David is hiding. David is living in one cave after another, being hunted by the king of Israel as if he was a criminal. And that doesn't go on for 10 weeks or 10 months. That's a decade or more. So we must see verse 13 in light of the larger context of the book of Samuel, what happens in the balance of the book. The Spirit comes and trouble begins. The Spirit takes up residence in David and trouble begins. This is exactly what we see in Jesus Christ at his baptism. The dove, symbolizing the spirit, descends on Jesus. Jesus is baptized, and immediately that spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. And we ask, why? Why does God do it this way with David? Why does he do it this way with Jesus? And the answer is because God is not after appearances. He's after our heart, our character. Our soul. And the way he grows us, the way he develops us, is through difficulty. Character grows in the desert. Character grows in the wilderness. And David will be in the desert and the wilderness for the next 10, 11 years. I mean, 10 years go by before he ever experiences what God promises. And so the the wilderness in David's life is not a sign of the Spirit's absence. It's a sign of the Spirit's presence. It's not a judgment because of sin. It's a cleansing because of sonship. Now, now some of you say, you know, Rob, uh, you're all right, but man, you talk about trouble and adversity and difficulty way too much. (laughs) 
And, and frankly, I, I, you know, come on. Can't we talk about something a little more positive? And my response is, yeah. But this is all over the Bible. And you see, I, I want you to, to love God like David loved God. I want each and every one of you to know God like David knew God. I want you to make disciples that make disciples as Jesus commands us to. And testing and trouble is key to that process. It's part of the kingdom of God. So God chooses, God empowers, and then God tests. That's the divine order here in 1 Samuel. Now, this isn't original with me, but ultimately, uh, one of the main reasons that you aren't happy or you're often not happy isn't because of your lousy circumstances. It's because of your lack of character, your lack of heart. the person who's not afraid of failure is going to be infinitely more happy than the person who is afraid of failure. Uh, uh, the person who uh, loves God's word, who memorizes God's word, who, who loves uh, the, the godly input of uh, friends, uh, loves to be held accountable in, in different areas of his or her life, is always going to be infinitely happier than the person that tries to do the spiritual life alone or superficially. Uh, the person who basks in the grace of God, the wonder of forgiveness and righteousness that comes to us in Jesus, who is thrilled with the promises of God's love and God's word, will be infinitely happier than the 72 billionaires living in London, England. And the thousands of multimillionaires living around the world who carry truckloads of guilt or anxiety or emptiness. What makes us happy isn't our appearance, isn't our circumstances at the end of the day. It's character that's formed in the desert, in the good times and the bad times. It's formed at the foot of the cross. And unfortunately, our culture speaks so loudly in this area, it's really, really hard for us to listen to what was said 3,000 years ago in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Really hard to get it. Now, this brings me to my fourth point, Jesus redeeming, which points to God's grace. But let me back up here. We are told in verse 10, look at verse 10, that Jesse had seven sons. Seven was the number of perfection in the ancient Near Eastern world. We see that in different ways. The number seven is used in the Bible. And so what does Jesse the father do? He invites seven of his sons to the party, to the feast, to the sacrifice. His... Um, his inner core of sons. He invites the ones that count, the ones that have potential. And David is number eight. And David is so insignificant, he isn't even invited to the sacrifice. But after God passes on, on the first seven, uh, Samuel says to Jesse, hey, whoa, 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 Jesse, 
is there another one? And Jesse says, yes. Well, yeah, yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. There's the youngest. Now, that word youngest is a complex word in the Hebrew. It has a, um, a chronological component to it, so it's translated youngest, but it also has a stature component. So sometimes it's translated smallest. Uh, suggesting something that's inconsequential. Today we would uh, talk about it in terms of the runt of the litter. So in comes the runt, who's not even invited to the party. And David is anointed. And he is so inconsequential, he is so unworthy that we are not even told his name until the end of verse 13. David is the male Cinderella. Too unworthy to be invited to the ball. And he's the one. This is crazy. What's going on here? What God does here is just crazy because in the ancient uh, Near Eastern Hebrew world, the world of the Old Testament, the world of the book uh, of Genesis, it's the oldest that always went first. It's the oldest that received the most in terms of inheritance, the biggest blessing. It was the oldest that were the most dominant. That's a cultural thing. But God repeatedly in the Old Testament turns that upside down in order to demonstrate grace and mercy and compassion. I mean, take Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. He was nothing but a chronic liar. Uh, Then we come to Jacob, the deceiver, and and then there's uh, Joseph uh, near the end. Uh, Gideon, whose army is whittled away. Uh, Ruth, a, a Gentile, becomes an ancestor of David. And the same thing is true in the New Testament. None of you were wise. None of you were sophisticated. And so now we're back to the beginning. We're really back to the table. We're, we're, we're back to Jesus. Because we have to go from David to Jesus. And David here, the Bible is telling us, is the forgotten, overlooked son. And he vividly, vividly pictures Jesus, the ultimate, forgotten, overlooked son. Jesus, like David, came from Bethlehem. Bethlehem, in the eyes of the Roman world in Jesus' day, was just a backwater village, a couple hundred people uh, full of blue-collar shepherds. Dirty. And Jesus was born among animals to no-name parents. No fame, no name. He was raised in, in, in poverty. He was sent out into the wilderness. He was rejected uh, by everyone, including his disciples. He was forsaken by his father. Father, why have you forsaken me? He was crucified 
arguably the worst form of execution in the world. Now, during communion, uh, I read the passage from Isaiah 53. And Isaiah looks ahead to the time of Jesus and describes Jesus and said, no beauty, no majesty, nothing in his appearance. Nothing is in his appearance. In 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, we are told man looks at outward appearance. Nothing in his appearance. So when we move from David to Jesus, we come to the ultimate forgotten son. But also to the one who is key to character. Key to our battle with misdirection. You see, the only thing that's going to destroy um, our appearance addiction, our performance addiction that's rampant in our our, our culture, the only thing that's going to keep us from being chronically pickpocketed is looking to Jesus and resting in his grace. And when you know that Jesus Christ became inconsequential for you, that Jesus Christ became the runt to die on the cross in your place for your sins. And and you live in light of that amazing grace. That will crucify the pride that is at the root of our lack of character. So we want to go from David to Jesus that his life might flow in us and through us. Let's pray. So Father, we come to you and we praise you for your amazing grace. We praise you for all you give us in your son. We praise you for the, uh, for the wonder and, and the beauty of a passage like this that ultimately points us to Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.